This is Todd Henry, author of The Accidental Creative, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Todd Henry. I am the founder of a company called Accidental Creative. We help creative companies and teams generate ideas and understand life in uh, the create-on-demand world, meaning those who have to come up with ideas every day, we help them do that more effectively. And I also wrote a book called The Accidental Creative, How to Be Brilliant at a Moment's Notice, which shares a lot of the strategies that my company uses to help teams generate ideas on a daily basis. Well, perfect. And and I want to talk to our, our Leader Lab audience for a second. You know, we, we refocused in. We're, we're dealing with leadership, innovation, and strategy and all the research-based solutions for that. And it may, on the surface, seem, okay, accidental creative, what is this all about? One thing I've noticed in the majority of, of innovation authors that have come across in the past couple of years is that they don't do enough with writing uh, about the creative professionals and also writing about people who are responsible for the ideation and not the implementation. It's before we can get into innovation strategies, we need to actually have good ideas. And as I was reading the accidental creative, um, Todd's work is full of them. And um, it, I kept drawing connections to what I've seen in the research on the academic side, but I love the way that he makes it feel like you're not swimming through uh, a bunch of uh, $25 words. So I, I guess I'll, I'll start my first question to, to Todd is, what is the accidental creative and, and what's the idea behind uh, on-demand creativity? Yeah, so there, there are a couple of a couple of things the accidental creative means, right? Uh, they, they always say never name something that you're later going to have to explain. <laughs> but it has a couple of meanings. The first is that you know, many of us, Dave, we go to work every day and we have to come up with ideas. Maybe we're managers, consultants, um, you know, people who are are out there in the marketplace having to come up with ideas every day. But we didn't set out to be a creative necessarily, like a designer or a writer, and yet here we are having to come up with ideas every day anyway. And, and many of us have never really been effectively trained in the process of coming up with ideas consistently. And so we, we are, in many senses, accidental creatives, and more and more of us are being held to account for t- turning our thoughts into value on a daily basis. And as a result, I think there's an ever-increasing pressure in the marketplace that's put upon people who are in that situation. And really the second meaning of the accidental creative is that I believe that many of the best creative ideas are the result of a long process of pursuing what Stephen Johnson calls slow hunches, Um, but that those ideas often emerge at uh, seemingly unexpected times. We could call them creative accidents. It's an accident of fortune, meaning that we've done all the hard work to put ourselves in positions where these creative accidents are more likely to occur. And so the methodology that I teach really is about helping people who live in those create-on-demand environments on a day-to-day basis where we have to come up with ideas and turn our thoughts into value on a daily basis, helping us structure our life in such a way that we are much more likely to experience those creative accidents when we need them. The the book centers around kind of two parts, and the, the second part um, I love the way you sort of describe these five different elements of what you call the creative rhythm, that if you're in knowledge work, which is pretty much anyone in the developed world nowadays, you know, you're responsible for creating ideas on, on some level. And so tapping into this creative rhythm is pretty much a must. Now, you, you talk about these five elements of, of the creative rhythm. Real quick, can you, can you list what, what are those five elements and, and why do they matter? Sure, yeah. So as I looked at the, a broad range of people who seem to be doing this really, really well, uh, and, and, my, and by the way, my, the, the 
the metric I was looking at is that what, what we're trying to do is be prolific, meaning doing a lot of work, brilliant, meaning doing good work because we have to do that, and healthy, meaning doing it in a sustainable way. And I, I, I wanted to try to answer the question, is it possible to be prolific, to be brilliant, and to be healthy all at the same time over a long period of time? That was kind of what I was shooting for. And as I looked at people who were doing this really well and getting all of those right, I found that they, they had some commonalities in their life. Sometimes they were doing things, uh, maybe even accidentally, right, unintended. They were doing things they didn't intend to do that were feeding their creative process and, and supporting and sustaining them and allowing them to hit that measure of being prolific, brilliant, and healthy. And there were five kind of common areas that I distilled all of these practices down into, and I called them the five elements of creative rhythm or the rhythm that supported their creative process. And those five elements are focus, uh, which is all about defining your work. People who are prolific, brilliant, and healthy have an incredible knack for being able to define their work very, very effectively and really distill, distill their work down into its, its core essence. Um, and, and work on the right problems at the right time. Uh, relationships, uh, you know, there's a myth, David, about the, what we would call the lone innovator or the, the myth of the lone innovator, that somebody in a cabin in South Georgia is inventing the next iPad right now, and they're going to come out and reveal it to the world, and everybody's going to be awed. But we all know that innovation is most frequently the collective grasp for the next, meaning it's all of us stumbling together shoulder to shoulder into uncomfortable places. And we need to be building alliances with people who are pursuing similar problems and, and use those relationships as a springboard to ideas. So that's the second element is relationships. The third element is energy. You know, we are wonderful at managing time, meaning we can, you know, most people have some rudimentary understanding that, uh, at least a rudimentary understanding that their time is their most valuable resource as a, as a professional. And where we put our time at the end of the day determine their success or failure. But a lot of us default to slipping into a mindset where we manage our time, even micromanage our time, and we completely neglect our most valuable resource, which is our energy. And we need to be good at making sure we have the energy we need throughout our day, throughout our week, to be able to effectively engage in the creative process. Because the creative process, like any process, requires energy. Um, so energy is the third element of rhythm that, that we really need build practices in in order to be effective. The fourth element of rhythm is stimuli. And stimuli are all the things that come into our head that stimulate the creative process. There's an old saying about food that you are what you eat. In other words, what you ingest will eventually turn into whatever your body becomes. And the same thing applies to our creative process. I would suggest that based on what I've seen, what you take into your head is what you create. Because the creative process is the recombination of things that exist already in our mind or things that exist in our environment. So we need to be really good at winnowing down the kinds of stimuli we're putting into our head and making sure that we're feeding ourselves good creative nutrition. And then the fifth element of rhythm is hours. And hours is all about where we put our time. And again, you know, we, we tend to be very effective uh, at, at managing our time in the sense that we all have a, a good sense of where our time needs to go in order to be efficient, but we often default to that efficiency mindset versus an effectiveness mindset. And what this means is that we default to things that make us feel immediately productive at the expense sometimes of things that could be more productive over the long term or more valuable over the long term. So we need to be building practices into our life that make us effective even if they don't feel immediately 
efficient because those kinds of effective practices are what create value over the long term and increase our capacity to continue to create over the long term as a creative professional. So focus, relationships, energy, stimuli, and hours are the five elements. And uh, I will say as a side note, David, they spell the acronym FRESH, and that was thoroughly unintentional. You know, sometimes I think you see something like that and it's kind of the eye roll. Oh, boy, you know, here we go. Cutesy acronym. Um, originally, they all had different names. And at one point, uh, my editor came to me and said, you know, right now you have FRESH, and FRESH is not very memorable. <laughs> Could we change time to hours and at least spell FRESH so that way it would be memorable to people? So, yeah, so that's an easy way to remember it is it spells FRESH, Focus Relationships, Energy Stimuli, and Hours. I'm really trying to figure out. I'm, I'm staring at the table of contents right now and trying to figure out if the letters rearranged into anything else with that T. But um, <laughs> I, I don't know that they do. Um, one of my one of my favorite chapters in in the book is is the one on the rela- on relationships. And uh, you you hit the nail on the head and and um, potentially potentially just titled a, a a chapter of my future book when you discuss this idea of the myth of that lone creative or lone inventor, which is totally not true, particularly in in what most of us are charged doing with doing creativity and, and even innovation-wise, which is generating ideas and working in teams. Um, how much does this? Uh, how much does the dynamics of creativity change when you are on a, a team-based um, ideation process or creative process versus an individual one? Oh, they, they change significantly. I mean, it's it's almost incalculable because not only now are we dealing with our own uh, our the the demand on us to be able to generate ideas. We're also dealing with everything that every single person on the team brings into the room, Um, other priorities that other people have, differing levels of urgency that we all feel toward the work that we're doing, and yet we're required to depend on one another uh, in order to get the work done and to to move forward. And and then when you do that, David, a lot of times it introduces – a lot of complexity, sometimes unnecessary complexity into the process. And I talk in the book about the, the assassins of the creative process. And these very frequently arise from little collaborative miscalculations that we have. Um, you know, the assassins are dissonance, fear, and expectation escalation. And dissonance is what happens when the why and the what of our work don't line up. And there's, a, there's something in the environment that doesn't quite seem right, and we can't quite put our finger on it. One of the sources of that is unnecessary complexity, and unnecessary complexity is just endemic to collaborative creative teams, especially when they're highly iterative collaborative creative teams. Um, and so, you know, really the, the only way to deal with that I've discovered is to A, and I'm, I'm doing so much speaking on this right now because so many teams are dealing with this, A, make sure you're creating an environment of conversation where you're not just talking about the work, but you're talking about how the work is getting done on a consistent basis so that people have the opportunity to address some of those issues related to dissonance when when things aren't quite lining up, fear, which is when the perceived consequences of failure outweigh the perceived benefits of success. Uh, You need to have conversations about that to make sure we all really understand the risks versus uh, falling prey to the perceived consequences of failure. And expectation escalation, which is what happens when we're comparing our in-process work with the work of everyone around us and making a, a judgment based on that as to whether or not the, the work merits continuing. And, and so we need to make sure that we're having not just conversations about the work, because we'll typically have to do that in order to get the work done, but conversations about the process by which the work is getting done in order to clear up the air and make sure that we're not falling prey to those assassins. But to, to answer your question, I think that there is, 
uh, th- that is one of the biggest, if not the single biggest issue I'm finding in teams. You know, hey, we hire for talent. People are incredibly talented, and people understand how to do the work that they're required to do, and, and there's a clear understanding of the objectives. But there are all these hurdles that we have to cross in order to get the gears aligned to make sure that the company is firing on all cylinders. And so it doesn't matter how talented the people are that you hire. If, if you don't create an environment of collaboration and conversation, then people are going to be constantly jumping hurdles, and they're going to feel frustrated, underutilized, and disengaged. I don't know if you saw the, uh, the, the study that was sponsored by Adobe that just came out a few weeks, a few weeks ago that said that I think it was something like 75% of people in the U.S., Great Britain, France, and Japan, I believe, were the four countries. I think it was 5,000 uh, creatives in those four countries were interviewed, and 75% of people felt like they were creatively underutilized. And, and I'm probably getting the numbers wrong, but that's, I, think, I think that's proximate to what the, what the number was. And, uh, you know, I think a big, big part of that is because we haven't yet figured out how to have conversations about the work. And that's what really led me to write the book, David, was that I felt like there are a lot of books about systems for innovation. That's great. We need those. There are a lot of books about tips and tricks for generating ideas quickly, you know, kind of the tipsy-tricksy kind of books. And we need those, too. Those are very helpful. But there wasn't much out there about what it feels like to be a creative professional. And it felt like that was a tremendously underserved topic. And that's really been my passion area has been how can people who are charged with doing this, who have the skills, they have the chops, they have the interest, they even, you know, are, are in some measure, they even feel like they're capable of exceeding expectations in terms of what they're doing every day. But they have to navigate the complexities of this create-on-demand world. How can those people deal with those dynamics and pressures in order to clear the airspace to be able to do their best work. And so I think, I think that that's really what we're dealing with right now, David, is that we're, we're not really very good at having those conversations inside of collaborative environments. You know, the, the cynic in me, my first response when I heard 75% of creatives say they're underutilized is, well, at least that number's about on par with uh, the average uh, blue or white-collar worker uh, as, as well, which is actually not good news. It's actually kind of sad, but... Um, yeah. You know, our, our podcast is called Leader Lab, and uh, when when I think about you know talent management issues and making sure people are utilized, you know it's probably my default in it to go to the role of the leader, the person leading that creative team or that that company that wants more innovation and wants a link between just you know there's there's brainstorming, then there's the innovation strategy, but in between that there's this process of of actually having to generate those creative ideas consistently, not just one and done. Um, and you mm-hmm. look at you look at some companies that do it leaderlessly. Some companies that do it through, uh, you know, you look at you look at Google with very organic processes and 20% time. And then there's Apple where everything seems like it was run by you know Steve Jobs and a few people at the top. But most organizations fall somewhere in the middle where there's this balance of of individuals and also leaders having to take their team through those hurdles. What advice would you have for for people who are leading teams of creatives or even just teams of people who are tasked with being creative in the context of whatever their work is? Yeah, I would say, I mean, as far as leaders go, I would say there are a couple of principles that, that really would help significantly. The first is be a laser, not a lighthouse, okay? Um, you know, we tend to, in, in larger organizations, a larger organization gets, as a matter of fact, we tend to default to protecting the ground we've already taken versus taking new ground. And for highly motivated, talented people, that can be a very frustrating environment, when it feels like we're constantly telling people what not to do as opposed to what to do, 
Um, that can be very frustrating, even if that's not what we're overtly doing. If that's the, su- the subtle context of what we're telling people, it can be very frustrating. So we need to learn to be laser-like in- instead of lighthouse-like. A lighthouse tells you, don't go here, don't go there, don't go here, don't go there, right? You're going to... You, you will stay out. You will avoid the rocks if you if you don't you know go where I'm shining, and that's that's fine, um, you know, in, in some contexts. But we need to be laser like. We need to be focused. We need to be to help people understand very clearly what we expect of them, even if we're not certain about the right choice or the right direction. Uh, we need to be very clear with people about what we expect of them, and uh, that's that's all a part of of all of that as well. I would say the other thing is. You know, do not sell out your team. If you want your team to take risks on your behalf, you need to take risks on behalf of your team. And the fastest path to irrelevance as a creative leader, a leader of creatives, is to sell out your team. Absolutely the fastest path to irrelevance. The moment you sell out your team, you will never, ever, ever earn their trust back. And we can sell out our team in a million different ways uh, without even realizing it. If we don't defend our team to the death, uh, which I feel like we need to do uh, in order to, to earn their trust and get them to take risks on our behalf, and then uh, we're, we're going to lose their trust, and they're not going to perform their best for us. Um, so we need to be really good at making sure that not only do they understand expectations and not only are we very clear even when we're not certain, but also that we're defending them and providing air coverage. I, I always tell people leaders get to take the most arrows, right? So as a leader of creative teams, a leader of innovation processes, um, you, you need to be out front making sure that you're the one who is, you know, the, the, taking the arrows as needed for your team in order to create space for them to do what they do best. And uh, so I think, I think by, and there are some other principles we could talk about, but I think that's kind of a good top line for what creates that environment of trust and an environment of taking calculated risks within an organization. If people feel like they have a safe playground in which to play, um, then, then they will play. But the moment they feel like that's violated, then they're going to start feeling frustrated. And they're going to start looking peripherally for something else. Oh, absolutely. And there's, there's a, it's one of the things that kind of stood out and immediately triggered my mind into, you know, I'm, I'm an academic by training and triggered my mind into there's, there's tons of research about, they use fancy terms like psychological safety and willingness to take risks, but it really just boils down to that. Do, do people feel like they can actually take a risk out of something or do they feel like they just have to fall in line and be a, a good little soldier uh, as it were? And if you don't have that trust element, you, you immediately violate it. The Accidental Creative is a, is a fantastic book for, for learning how to lead teams and even just lead yourself, and as much as I don't like that term, but learning how to lead yourself um, through this creative process. But Todd, I, w- I want to shift the focus to you for, for a few minutes and ask you, um, you've written a great book, but what are you reading now? Oh, wow, that is a fantastic question. I just finished, okay, so I'm, I'm reading a hodgepodge of things right now because I'm actually working on my, on my next book. So uh, forgive the really the hodgepodge of stuff I'm about to throw at you. Um, I, I just finished a book called Unbroken, um, which is obviously a bestseller. Uh, it's a story um, of Louis Zamperini, uh, World War II prisoner of war. Um, the, the main reason I read it is because I'm, I'm intensely fascinated by the capacity of people to endure and the capacity of people to find hope even in the midst of hopeless situations. And that's something that I'm exploring a ton right now in my uh, in my in my upcoming book. So uh, I'm, I'm just finished that. Really enjoyed it. Also, right now I'm in the middle of a book called Abundance: The Future Is Better Than You Think, um, which is all about how you know we're we're bombarded on a daily basis with uh, how 
the world is, you know, going to pot and everything is terrible and we're running out of everything. And this book basically provides hope that, hey, maybe, you know, maybe things aren't quite as hopeless and desperate as everybody wants you to think they are. Uh, and so that's uh, been a really interesting read as well. Um, I'm also, see, I, I tend to read, so, you know, Dave, I tend to read about five books at a time. So I've got five books right now that I'm about halfway through. Uh, I'm reading the book How by Dove Seidman. Um, the subtitle is Why How We Do Anything Means Everything. It's all about, uh, essentially it's about, you know, we always tend to talk about our objectives and our goals, but this talks about why how we do something is, is actually very important. And then I'm also listening to a variety of uh, audiobooks <laughs> right now as well, and I'd, I'd be happy to, uh, if I wasn't on the phone right now, I could open up my app and tell you exactly what they are. Um, actually, I'm doing that anyway. Uh, yeah, so I'm listening to The, the Knack by Norm Brodsky. Um, I, you know, I tend to listen to books as part of my routine when I walk in the morning. Uh, so I'm listening to The Knack by Norm Brodsky, which is a, a kind of a summary of a lot of his uh, best practice advice for entrepreneurs. Um, and again, a, just a fantastic, fantastic book. And then I'm listening to The Element by Ken Robinson. Um, and it's a book about how people discovered this thing that they are uh, wiring their, or the, the thing that they decided to build their life around uh, and how it changed everything for them once they discovered the thing that they wanted to build their life around. Because, that, again, that's a very similar theme to what I'm, I'm writing about in this upcoming book. So, well, and uh, hopefully you know, that's that, helpful and not overwhelming at all. <laughs> no, not, not overwhelming at all. And actually, it serves as a perfect preview to uh, what is usually our, our, uh, our last question, which is what's next for you, which uh, we already sort of saw a little bit of the answer to. Yeah, so so I'm I'm doing a ton of speaking right now and a ton of uh, workshops, things of that nature, with companies and and with teams. Um, doing a lot of, of conference speaking as well, uh, and I'm working on my my second book right now, uh, which is tentatively titled "Die Empty." And the idea is that the last two words of the accidental, the last two sentences of the accidental creative are "Don't go to your grave with your best work inside. You die empty." And the title of this next book tentatively is Die Empty. The subtitle is Don't Go to Your Grave with Your Best Work Inside You. And it's basically picking up where the accidental creative left off. So after you build these practices into your life, position you uh, to be able to have the space to think about this important work that you want to bring to the world, which is really kind of the, the, the end game for the accidental creative is you know, don't just live in this reactive create-on-demand thing. Instead, get ahead of it by building this rhythm so you have the capacity to think about how you're approaching your work as well. So the, the end game of that is, okay, now you've got this platform and this capacity by building these practices. So what does that mean for you? And how do you actually go about doing the work that you think you might be here on this earth to do? And so that's, that's really the subject that we're exploring in this next book through talking about things like how do you discover those points of traction? Um, how do you actually structure your life so you're doing your most important work every day? And then... Uh, what does intentional growth look like over the long term? You know, how do you how do you structure your life so that you're growing intentionally and you're building practice or building skills that will help you accomplish this long term thing? So, doing that, also building a, uh, an online tool to help creative teams collaborate. So maybe we can talk about that as well once that's uh, once that's up and going, and it should be uh, up and going here within a matter of months. So, uh, but that's that's what's on the horizon right now for me. Oh, for sure. that's, and that's a that's a lot of balls to keep in the air. I'm I'm impressed that you're able to do <laughs> that. that. That's, but, only, that's only a couple of them. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I was, yeah. I was gonna say I, I was gonna say you're obviously tapped into your creative rhythm. So uh, that's that's the only explanation for for how how you've got so many juggling so many things at once, right? 
Sure, yeah. And, well, and that's the thing, you know, I always tell people, this is a leader lab, right? I'm almost, you know, sort of in many ways, I'm a lab for a lot of these things that I'm talking about because if, there, if, if I can't find these things effective in my own life and we can't find these things effective with teams that we're working directly with, um, then it's, it's obviously completely useless. And the last thing we want to do is saddle people with unnecessary. Nobody needs unnecessary things in their life. So that's why we went through this process of applying, you know, testing, pruning practices and really getting down to the core practices that uh, we felt like were the essential practices for creative professionals. And it's a fantastic resource uh, for exactly that. And also, I, w- I want to encourage people not just to check out the Accidental Creative, but also AccidentalCreative.com. Um, Todd, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 